0: welcome to Conversations on Climate. My name is Chris Caldwell and this series is produced by United Renewables in collaboration with the London Business School Alumni Energy Club. We sit down with the experts who are trying to solve the biggest challenge of our time before time runs out. Today we're speaking to you from the old Marlebone Town Hall in London where we had the honour of speaking to London Business School's Vice Dean and Professor of Strategy and Entrepreneurship, Julian Birkenshaw. Professor Breckenshaw's list of accomplishments could fill a podcast on their own. But by way of brief introduction, Julian is a Fellow of the British Academy, the Strategic Management Society, and the U.S. Academy of Management. He holds an MBA and a PhD from the University of Western Ontario, is regularly ranked amongst the Thinkers 50 list of global management thinkers, has published 15 books and hundreds of articles in leading journals. He frequently contributes to the BBC, The Economist, The Wall Street Journal, Business Week and The Times. A consultant to some of the world's leading firms, Julian has a great mind, an easy charm, and an insatiable curiosity. He also has a drive that's second to none, and it all resulted in an excellent and passionate conversation covering topics such as doing business in time of radical change, whether this change is really as radical as we may think, how modern management is evolving slowly from traditional meritocracies and bureaucracies to face the challenge of the day, doing this by empowering individuals, and how this empowerment can help to re-engage post the Great Resignation, and hopefully allow for the next generation to work with an alignment of purpose. We then speak about big picture issues, including the global and macro aspects of management thinking, including ESG, leadership and climate, which sometimes seems like herding cats, and society's attitude to disruption. We close with a deeper dive into some of Professor Birkenshaw's most impactful works on business leaderships and innovation and how they fit with the energy transition. It's a conversation that did not disappoint and one that you will not want to miss. Julian, thank you so much for ta- much. taking the time to come speak to us. Yeah, great pleasure. So, um, without any further ado, you started your career uh, as a
1: geologist, I believe. That's right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I did my undergraduate degree in geology, let's yeah, yeah, be yeah, clear yeah, on that. Yeah. No, for so sure. I spent three. Fascinating years, understanding uh, how the world was made yeah. uh, at Durham University in the UK. Yeah. Uh, but actually, my first job straight out was it was in fact in the information technology area. I was a I was basically a computer programmer. Okay, uh, that didn't last very long before I went off and did an MBA. So. Okay.
0: and when you were kind of looking at kind of geology and the, the the natural world, did you ever consider like a, a career in, in energy or in yeah, the extraction absolutely. industry I mean, a, or whatever?
1: A bunch of my friends colleagues went and joined. Uh, the big oil companies, uh, North Sea oil was big in those days. Uh, a lot of them went on and did PhDs, uh, and of course had, had careers in academia or in, in applied applied academia. You might say, but but yeah, it was it was quite difficult to be quite honest. Getting a, a role in those areas. So anyway, business called my name, so that's where I ended
0: up. Great, right. so. and, and you ended up going across to, to Canada exactly. at a very young age.
1: Yeah, so I was well, mid twenties. I moved to Canada, did an MBA there. Uh, the Richard Ivey School of Business, as it's now known, and then I stayed for a PhD, and then uh, came back here in the uh, early early nineties. Yeah,
0: rest yeah. is history. And what what first like attracted you to the world of business?
1: So, look, I mean, business. I guess I always sort of thought of myself as a as kind of going into the world of business without really knowing much about it. That was you know trading stocks as a as a kid. I saw my dad was a managing director in a chemical company and all those sort of things. So so that always seemed to be kind of where I'd end up. But what I didn't realise, of course, was that that actually you could combine academia with business, which is obviously where I ended up. My, my grandfather was a, an academic, a professor of, of chemistry and biochemistry. So that, in some ways, you know, these things all make sense in retrospect. At the time, it was frankly a bunch of somewhat random decisions born of an interest in something which then obviously kind of let, uh, bore fruit afterwards. And uh,
0: in, in kind of you know, look, looking at your works, yeah. one thing is really clear is that you, you, you look beyond the hype. Yeah, uh, you exactly. just try to look, look at the world yeah. as it is, you know, yeah. warts and all. Yeah. It doesn't, yeah. you know, yeah. whatever, whatever, and you, you call it as, as you see yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so I'd say there's a very kind of pragmatic you know, right. aspect to your research. Um, but you also note that there's um, intrinsic motivation in mission. So where do you see the balance between, like from your personal point of view, the balance between kind of pragmatism and ideology, if that's the right
1: word? Yeah, I mean, I guess I've, I've always, as you say, I've always tried to avoid just falling into the trap of saying that, you know, a new technology is exciting just because everyone else is talking about it. And try to say, is that really what is happening? So I, in some ways I see myself as, as almost arbitraging between the world of business and the world of academia, by which I mean... If I stay close to what's happening in the real world, and I spend a lot of time talking to business people like yourself, um, that allows me to see that academia is moving in, in the, let's say, the wrong direction, and I can you know, write the, the piece which says, you know, hold on, guys, this is not actually the way that the world works, and, and find my way back. And by the same token, if I'm a, a decent academic, I've got access to frameworks and ideas that only the academic world knows. And I can sometimes bring those into the practical world and, you know, do something interesting with them. And a lot of my most successful, shall we say, practical work has really been ideas that other academics came up with first. I mean, there's no new ideas under the sun. So, you know, this concept of of, of ambidexterity, maybe we're going to come on to it later. Organisations have to be good at exploiting their existing assets whilst also exploring new ones. Well, that's an idea that's been around for, for 30 years, but I I was one of the people who was able to kind of craft an academic story around it, show how it fitted into practice. And as a result, it's kind of one of my most cited Pieces of research, so.
0: and you're also not afraid to to take it the other way around. And uh, from the from the world of academia, mm. write a book and says Management, it's not working
1: anymore. Exactly. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. No, that's right. I mean, and of course, it's very difficult to say business people it's not working. Uh, I mean, there's lots of evidence that it's not quite working. But to come up with a an angle that they then are interested in exploring that that takes time. I mean, I, I'll be quite honest. You know, it's taken me a long time to figure out the right way of expressing my ideas in a way that actually resonates with business people. And sometimes it doesn't resonate. Sometimes you think you've got this really cool idea, uh, and actually it kind of dies. And then you try a different angle. And that's, by the way, that's one of the reasons why London Business School is, is such a great place, because we have these steady streams of executives coming to do programs with us, right? So I get to try out my ideas with them rather than just trying them out with an academic audience.
0: One of the central themes of your research is disruption. Yeah. What do you think in your character brought you to, to be so interested in that
1: area? We must start with definitions. So, um, d- disruptive innovation, disruptive technology is... And, and we can absolutely start thinking about various aspects of digitalization and, and blockchain and things like that. Did you... Did, Disruptive technology is something that has a sufficiently profound impact on an existing sector that it causes the existing leaders in that sector to be challenged. In other words, you know, when we see you know, Tesla take genuine leadership from the traditional automotive companies, that is, that's proper disruption as work. Well. But I'll give you another example. You know, The retail banking sector... Um, has not been disrupted because the fact is that the retail, retail banks in pretty much every developed economy in the world are exactly the same as they were. Now, they are potentially being disrupted, but they have not been disrupted. So for me, I have this slightly narrow definition. Disruption is is happening around us, but you can't really say that every industry has been disrupted because some industries, the incumbents do just fine and they sail on regardless and other industries, you see the incumbents being killed off. So for me, disruption is that specific point. So do you want to go back to your, your previous question, which was something about why was I attracted Yeah, yeah, to what, what, what,
0: what in, in your, your personality and your nature brought you to...
1: Yeah, so if you look at my 30 years as an academic, uh, studying big companies, studying entrepreneurship within big companies, studying innovative technology, studying management innovation, the constant theme has been essentially how is it that big established firms are able to, to adapt? You know, the, 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 the big question, if you like, is what makes big established companies resilient? Or are some of them resilient and others less resilient? So, you know, I was naturally drawn to trying to understand what the sources of disruption were that some companies were able to rise above and to sort of tran- to transcend and others ended up getting, kind of coming a crop away. So that's, that's what got me interested in the last five years, really. My, my biggest single focus of my research has been understanding these disruptive forces and digitization is one, but climate change is absolutely another. Uh, understand these disruptive forces and understand the ways that particularly established companies are responding to those things. Mm-hmm.
0: And some very interesting research you, you came up with was the mm-hmm. Fortune 500 25 years ago as to today. Which yeah, I exactly. A so about let me just day.
1: give you the, in case any readers haven't come across it, uh, I wrote a thing in half Harper Business Review earlier this year, 2022, and the kind of the headline statistic was, you know, take the Fortune 500 from last year and guess how many of that Fortune 500 did not exist in any form 25 years ago at the beginning of the internet revolution. And most people, when I ask that question, they say, well, maybe it was one or two hundred. Some people say maybe it was three hundred. The true answer is 17. Only 17 of the Fortune 500 are completely new. And, of course, it's it's Facebook, it's it's Amazon, it's Google, it's Netflix. I mean, Tesla, you can name half of those even without thinking about it. But the point is there are only 17 of them. The other 483 are companies that have existed way longer than that and have managed to adapt. So most people... This is going back to one of your earlier questions. Most people fixate on the world's being disrupted. Oh, my gosh, what are you going to do? Well, I'm trying to look at the same data through, as it were, the other end of the telescope and to say, steady on, that actually huge evidence that the big established companies of today are adapting quite nicely. They have figured out ways of taking new technologies, harnessing it, sometimes circumventing it, sometimes actually kind of going back to what they were doing in the first place, because that still works. All sorts of ways of adapting. Elephants have learned how to dance, is the expression <laughs> that's sometimes used.
0: Very yeah. good. Yeah, we've got, it's like a climate is quite similar to that. It's like where you have um, people believing they're in the middle of a climate revolution yeah. and like, of course, like everything's changing, everything's changing. Emissions are still going up year in, year out. If we're in the middle of an absolute revolution, well, that wouldn't be happening. I there, mean, so. and,
1: and this is it, and this is where... I, and I don't want to get into trouble, because let, let's be very clear, I absolutely believe that climate change is, you know, the, the big challenge of our time. But the trouble with climate change, of course, is that it does happen in these very, very infinitesimal steps. And, and there's always this nagging worry that, you know, you've got this exponential curve and that we're at that point in that curve where maybe everything's going to go really badly wrong very, very quickly. And the trouble is we don't know for sure where we are on that curve. So we have to take it seriously. And yet we also have to uh, recognise that, you know, in the short term life, life goes on. And we've got to try to find the right mechanisms for, for, you know, for, for managing the transition. In a way that works for everybody, and, and this is difficult. This is, as I say, this is the big, the big debate at a political level as well as at a corporate level.
0: Yeah, no, no, absolutely. Um, and there's, there's, we're now getting a little bit philosophical, but there's. Very polarized attitudes right. to to change. Right. There's very po- polarized attitudes to radical change, change in society. Yeah. If you look at people who are, um, will people generally, on average, yeah. be really excited about a disruptive technology yeah. or, or a disruptive uh, new, new an iPhone, right. you know? Yeah. Yeah. But people, on average, will not be excited about changes to society, changes to, right. to, the, to the way of living. Right. Yeah. How do you think we can get a kind of more nuanced discussion on on, on radical change?
1: Yeah. So. As you say, we've got to both look at the societal level in terms of where the world is going, where does the world need to go. But you've also then got to bring it down to what does it mean to me as an individual? And there are some potentially disruptive changes where we can harness individuals' motivation and, if you like, agency to change. Uh, And then the challenge is one of simply amplifying that effect. But then you've got the, the much more difficult ones where essentially we're asking people to, you know, pay more for their fuel, a very live debate but now, and change their lifestyle in ways that, you know, do more recycling or whatever. And, of course, those are changes which most people cannot be bothered to make. And, and, I, and I... Of course, there's a role for corporates, a huge role for corporates in trying to make these changes as, as easy as possible. But, but I, I genuinely think that the government's role here is decisive. I mean, you look at little silly things like, you know, charging 5p for a plastic bag or whatever it is, you know, the sugar tax, which was watered down but still exists, small c- changes by government, significant impacts within, you know, weeks or months of those changes. Everybody says, fine, let's just get on with it, despite mass opposition before. And, and of course, we probably have to make even more changes in terms of societal impact on our behaviours. Uh, We absolutely must get governments to take those steps. Corporates can work with governments on that, but ultimately, this is policy. And, you know, there's a time and a place when actually policy changes, whether it's changes, nudges in our behaviour, whether it's simply more taxes, are are the the best ways of doing things. Uh, And of course, you know, let's not get into a debate about politics, but some countries, shall we say, are handling this a lot better than others.
0: So, yeah, some countries are
1: very centrally managed
0: (laughs) and very good at dealing with big issues like this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But there's a cost. Yes, (laughs) Indeed. There's there's a cost to each of the individuals in their societies. Indeed. So um, you're also, you're never, I think we mentioned before, never one to back away from a controversy and uh, to be calling out, um, you know, managed management's uh, failures. Yeah. Um, that book was uh, 10 years old. Yep. Um, have you seen there's been much progress over the last 10, 10 years in, in kind of finding the third way? You know? And so, just to be clear, which, which of my books are we
1: talking uh, about? The, you were talking about reinventing management. Reinventing management, yeah. Um, so, I've seen a lot of progress towards what I call, you know, the alternative model, which is, which for the for the benefit of the listener who hasn't read my books, I mean, I'm talking about a move away from traditional hierarchical and bureaucratic styles of managing towards much more fluid ways of working. Um, I see many companies experimenting with versions of what I talk about. And, you know, big companies like Nl, the energy company, ING, the, the Dutch bank, Roche, the Swiss pharmaceutical company. I see companies who've explicitly taken my ideas and, and kind of run with them. I mean, I occasionally, it doesn't happen very often, but I do occasionally literally get a call from a chief executive saying, you know, I read your book, I'm trying to put your ideas into practice. I see huge progress, and yet I also see sort of two steps forward, one step back. And what I mean by that is you see a company experimenting with these new ways of working. They're better. They're more, you know, exciting for people. And they harness technology better. You know, they allow more creativity and innovation. And yet, occasionally, you'll then get a, a stumble. You'll get either a, a financial crisis or you'll see the company itself has missed its earnings numbers or whatever. And the human reaction then is what does they do? They, they pull back and they go back to... Doing what they used to do, or they centralised control again. And all these well-intentioned and good efforts are kind of coming to nothing. Now, that doesn't make me want to give up, don't get me wrong. All I'm saying is that we cannot expect progress to just sort of suddenly happen. We have to expect it to come in, as I say, you know, forward a little bit, back a little bit, and so forth. Digital technology is absolutely making it more likely that this will work, because for the first time ever, Technology allows information to be shared vertically and horizontally in ways that it wasn't before. So the traditional hierarchical model, which is a lot about information flowing down through the organisation, a lot of that is no longer as important as it used to be. So I'm optimistic, but I don't think we're going to suddenly see every organisation adopt these new better ways of working.
0: It's also, um, with the more kind of remote working, yeah. it's a bit more difficult for, yeah. for yeah. the for the, the natural flow of information yeah. that was going from, from, from the yeah. office, just being in the building yeah. with other humans. Yeah. No, you indeed. Yeah.
1: I mean, of course, as with all such things, you know, the shift, you know, the natural experiment of remote working that we all had to go through uh, had its pros and its cons, right? And if I'm working from home, by definition, I, I have a little bit more freedom because there's no boss, you know, watching what I do. But at the same time he or she is also a little bit less inclined to give me the freedom because they can't watch me. And, and you know, they've got mechanisms, of course, to, to monitor my behaviour online. So, you know, whenever I talk to companies about remote working, I say, look, we, we've got to get a balance here, but we've got to just get much better at the basics of delegating decision-making and and authority to individuals so that they kind of own their own decisions. And that works from the top of the organisation to the bottom. So, you know, in some ways, the experiment with remote working has kind of re-emphasised, reaffirmed that basic proposition, which is delegated authority, putting decisions closer to the action, to the people who are best aware of what is needed and giving them the competencies to make those decisions. That is what we should be working on more.
0: It strikes me, and you know, please, please tell me if, if I'm entirely wrong, but uh, climate change is a pretty good example of uh, discontinuous innovation. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Would you agree? Well, no, let, let me physics?
1: frame it because, you know, when I, when I teach this stuff, I teach a whole course on what we call business resilience, right? Which is about the ability to kind of bounce back. And, and you know, the first point to make is you've got to be resilient on, you know, at least, sorry, say, three three dimensions or, or three three time horizons. You've got to be resilient to very short-term shocks, COVID, you know, global finan- uh, financial crisis, where the effect is felt within weeks. You've got to be resilient to the stuff which takes, you know, months if not years to work through, and certainly digitization is one. And then you've got to be resilient to the things which take... Decades to, to work their way through, which of course is climate change, and and we sometimes call the first one a black swan event. You've heard that expression, the thing that you 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 kind of didn't foresee, and then suddenly it's there, and 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 you think, oh my gosh, why didn't we think of that? Then you've got, on the other end, you've got the climate change, which sometimes is called a grey rhino, and and the metaphor there is this thing is coming at you, it's coming at you. You can see it a long way off. Um, no one needs to predict this, it's happening. And yet, because it's a long way off, for a long time you actually just sort of you know, say, yeah, I can see it's coming, there's nothing we need to do. And then, and then suddenly you've actually got to act. So, so I do absolutely see you know, the discontinuities happening on these time horizons. Climate change is in some ways the hardest. I mean, everybody found COVID difficult, but the point is there was never any ambiguity about what needed to be done. And the climate crisis, and, you know, we can talk about specific industries in a second, but the climate crisis, the question is 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 when do you act, not do you act, if you see what I mean. And for a lot of companies, the smart thing to do, and I, I don't like to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway, this in many cases, the smart thing to do has been to, to delay. I mean, for a lot of companies, you take the, the big oil companies. Up until now, a lot of them have been absolutely just delaying doing anything because they could see that the the world still needed their oil. Now, I'm not defending that proposition, but we know it is something that they've been doing. And now we are finally starting to see, you know, the big oil companies, most of them anyway, taking seriously the need to to rethink, you know, energy.
0: Yeah, which kind of brings us nicely nicely to another of your 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 models about yeah. the potential ways that companies react to yeah. to, to disruption. Yeah. Like you know the oil companies, yeah. you have um, like Orsted who's completely yeah. transformed uh, the business. Yeah. You have um, say, who who's yeah. done a kind of hybrid approach. Yeah. they doing what they're doing, but leaning into into like a. Yeah. renewables in quite a big way. And then you've got the more, the more American mm-hmm. uh, style who are just doubling, and, the, and the Saudi Aramco, just doubling down mm-hmm. on, on, on mm-hmm. what the, what they're already doing, just trying to make it cheaper yeah. and better and just thinking, mm-hmm. no, we're good at this and yeah. You, yeah. Don't, you don't have the advantages. Do, yeah. do you want to talk
1: about Yeah, I do. So, I mean, uh, in my research, I've been digging into all these different industries. I mean, I like to separate out the utilities from the, from the oil, big oil companies, if you see what I mean. So when I look at the utilities, which, of course, are much more kind of Consumer driven. I mean, their job is to essentially find you know sources of energy that create you know electricity and gas into the home. And you've seen NL and Iberdrola and NextEra. I mean, you've seen a bunch of these companies actually be incredibly proactive about changing the energy mix. And some of them are now at fifty percent renewables. I think NL, for example, is is at that is at that level. Um, they're consumer driven. They're heavily regulated it's not surprising really that they have pushed very hard uh, because they can see ultimately that what they're trying to do is just simply, you know, satisfy the customer market. Now, then you've got the, the big oil companies, and there's a, of course there's a clue in the name, right, which is that if they absolutely started out being good at one thing only, which is extracting large amounts of oil from the ground, you know, if you look at their transformation, you know, there's a denial for a long period, you had the, the famous case of BP, which, of course, you know, in the early 2000s, you know, before before the Macondo rig exploded, Deepwater Horizon, they had a huge renewables business. Uh, John Brown pushed that and they had to actually dismantle it uh, because in some ways they were too soon. And now you're seeing, you might call, the second wave of kind of rethinking Total. I think BP is doing a decent job there. Shell, maybe. The European one's... Broadly, perhaps you don't agree with that, but I I would certainly say that the European oil companies have moved rather quicker than the American oil companies. Safe to say. Safe (laughs) to say. Um, For reasons that I think are fairly obvious, I think Europe is generally more progressive when it comes to saving the the, the planet than the the US, notwithstanding some some factions. Um, And the challenge we face, i mean, I'd love your views on this, but the challenge we face is, you know, is that enough? In other words, are there enough incentives in place for these companies to, shall we say, self-regulate themselves into changing their energy mix? Or do they need a much firmer kick from, you know, the governments and the regulators and and the taxes? Because at the moment, if I look at the amount of transition I see, and I've been following lots of different industries using very, very simple kind of indicators it's clear to me that utilities have gone way further than the big oil companies big oil is, is probably the least transitioned industry of them all the automotive industry you know thanks to Tesla has now finally kind of taken seriously the transition and everybody's now running to catch up with Tesla um, and then you see other industries where you've actually seen dramatic changes I mean I'm now moving beyond you know, climate and into other in, in, into other Disruptive technologies, but there are some industries which are completely transforming themselves. So, so I do worry that we are only now starting to see you know, the, the big transition amongst the oil companies.
0: Yeah. Um, what I really like, like to understand is is what your on whether a carbon credit yeah. and some sort of some sort of like actual price on yeah. on climate, perhaps uh, yeah. attached to a blockchain or in yeah, yeah, yeah. some, some yeah. sort, of, sort yeah. of regulated market, yeah. could that really kind of make yeah. make, it, make it force force the hand yeah. of, of the of the, the oil? No, it,
1: so? it's a, no, it's a good way to get to go further because. At the moment uh, it 's not working, in other words, uh, we are not seeing the level of progress we need. Um, you know the, the carbon credits, carbon trading i mean i but by nature, as a sort of a semi economist, I like the idea that we should try to use market forces to try to you know persuade people to act in their interests to to do these things. The mechanics of carbon trading. I'm not going to attempt to get into because it's a complicated business there are some genuine experts out there who you can tap the views of but do I think that we should use creative you know market type mechanisms to try to persuade you know, big oil companies to invest more in renewable source of energy? Absolutely, I do. There's, there's no question that, that this is a, a means to get them to do what they otherwise wouldn't. Because you know, the way the world is now, and of course we're recording this whilst the, you know, the Russia-Ukrainian war is going on, um, the way the, the life is at the moment, we've just not got enough energy available. So you know, you, you're going to have to work doubly hard to persuade people to, to wean themselves off carbon-based fuels right
0: now. Yeah, yeah you've, you've got the kind of double-edged sword here where you've got incredibly high temperatures yeah. caused, yeah. at least in some parts, yeah. by climate change yeah. and then the need for you to be you're turning on your electricity to yeah. keep yourself cool at extremely high prices. Yeah. So but there, there's, there, there, there's an, an inherent conflict
1: there. And the only solution in the short term is indeed that we continue to use fossil fuels which, you know, are, are still the, the majority of the energy that... That we have whilst peddling very hard to try to you know do the innovation and obviously manage the demand side of the equation to try to get people more efficient in, in using energy to make that transition but you know no one's under any illusions that that's that's still a, a very very difficult transition so For sure
0: yeah and there yeah you no, you're absolutely right there is there's there's a, a period of time of uh, how long we will absolutely need to be using fossil fuels just to keep keep everything going but it's a question of how long that, that period is. Like, some people gotcha. are looking at it as, as, as 2050. Well, that's too late, guys. <laughs> you too late. Yeah. If you take it as, as a couple of years' bridge and you work really hard, yeah. then we can make all that work.
1: Yeah, so, you know, again, to stick to my area of expertise, you know, the, the, the disruption is, is climate change. The second-order consequence of that is that there are and need to be huge disruptive technologies coming along that enable us to actually make that transition. So lithium-ion battery, that was the innovation that has spurred all the current changes. Well, there's going to be other innovations following that, right? Because we haven't reached you know, the solution yet. You know, we need to have market forces working in a way that, that enable those innovations to come. That's that's the only way that business will ever you know, work its way out of this crisis. Yeah, so, yeah,
0: if one of your um, kind of central message that's really important for organisations to be setting goals. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that on, on one side, and on the other side, you've got um, you know the the ESG movement, which mm. says that uh, there is no inherent conflict between uh, shareholder value yeah. and mm. stakeholder value.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Do you agree? So
1: I wrote a thing that most people would not have read. It was called "Purpose with Profits" or something like that, Sloan Management Review. And the, the simple starting point there was: look in the Long term, there is no inherent conflict between purpose and profits. In other words, the companies that have a strong purpose, that have a, a really clear view of the value they're creating for some stakeholder groups, will be in a position, by virtue of that purpose, will be in a position to make Better profits, and, and the evidence for that is actually quite strong. There's lots of studies have done of you know, the most profitable companies in the long term are absolutely the ones with the, the higher order purpose. But in the short term, there is an inevitable trade-off, right? I mean, there's no question that you know, it, you know, next year, if I want to invest in my purpose, whether that's around people, whether that's around innovation or whatever, I am taking money and putting it into some use which, by definition, is not yielding me profits in the short term. So I am taking money away from my profits in the short term and putting it somewhere where there is a long-term payoff. So, for me, it's a short-term, long-term thing. In the short term, there's always a trade-off between purpose and profits. In the medium to longer term, there is no trade-off. And for me, the answer to that question about how do you sort of, almost like reconcile the short and the long term, is that you... You ensure that you've got some sort of mechanism some sort of forcing mechanism that ensures that you take seriously the the purpose so in in, in one of the articles I wrote for example I, I used this example of the Swedish bank called Handelsbanken you know and this is a bank which basically is is all about customer focus. They don't have a budgeting system. They have decentralized decision-making into all the branches. They don't have a very, very small head office. And for them, everything is about customer value. Uh, They have a profit-making scheme for the branch manager, which only pays out when they retire. So as a Swedish branch manager in Handelsbank, basically you you spend 20 years or whatever running the branch, uh, making a very average living. And then suddenly when you retire you know, there's this beautiful nest egg for you. And my point is, of course, that that is a way of aligning, you know, it's a, the oldest story in the book in some ways, aligning people's interests with what they're genuinely trying to do. Because if you invest in actually trying to create a sustainable bank, you know, you'll get your profits, you know, when you've proven that sustainability. Lots of such examples out there. My my point is that if we're to take climate change seriously, to get back to kind of the, the climate key thing here, we have to ensure that our systems are, are, are kind of embedding into the way that the company works you know, some sort of reinforcing device that actually then you know, shows that, that, that climate change or, or, or sustainability or responsibility is the end goal rather than focusing on the shorter term goals. Yeah.
0: I think there's a really interesting example that you brought up a couple of times, and also you, I think you recommended the book recently, uh, Paul Pullman's uh, book on, on Unilever. Could exactly, exactly. you like to talk about, like, that's a remarkable transformation? But-
1: and, of course, Paul Pullman is, is you know, everyone's favourite example of a chief executive who who really took uh, sustainable development seriously with Unilever. You know, his first act, essentially, was to, to tell the financial markets that he wasn't going to give them quarterly guidance. He was only giving them annual guidance. And, you know, the shared price took a dive, but recovered when people realised that actually this wasn't him hiding bad results. It was him trying to actually say, along the lines of what I'm saying, that it takes time to do these things. And if you're going to judge me every quarter, then you've, you've got the wrong metric. And, and there's, you know, he's written an entire book on this pro- subject. It's called Net net profit, is it, or net worth? I can't even remember. we have to, you know, provide... The... Yeah, net, net, positive, net positive. Net positive, thank you. You know, the whole point of that book is that, you know, this wasn't just a slogan for Unilever. He kind of built it into everything that they did. And, and he's got story after story about some of the hard decisions he took early on to, to signal his intent. And then how he kind of worked his way, you know, through the supply chain and through with all his, you know, his brand managers and the products that they're selling in order to make sure that what they did was was actually, you know, linked to those sustainability goals. So, you know, he, he tells them a story much better than I do, but but for sort of a, a top-to-bottom reinvention of a company, it's quite impressive. I spend a lot of time sort of in the middle of Unilever working with people in various different projects, and I, I'm always sort of bowled over by how how sort of seriously they take this stuff you know there's, there's some companies it's a slogan, and some companies you you can see them kind of living this stuff on a day to day basis and, and he's, he's had that sort of effect on them
0: um if you are like kind of a recent MBA and yeah. you're going into a firm yeah. um is there a way look like, what advice would you give if they if they aren't a passion they want to make a change yeah. is it go to a Unilever or something that aligns with their values, or yeah. can you make a
1: difference in in, in a firm yeah. as a middle manager I mean the short answer is um, is is the former. In other words, I I think that, quite honestly, if you're a, you know, a, an excitable, uh, ambitious, progressive MBA, you know your smart advice is choose a company that's already going in the direction you want to go. And and I, that's just purely pragmatic because it is possible to make a real difference in any company you go to. But I see so many people get frustrated where they they can see potential, they can hear. Glimmers of hope at the top, and yet they see this massive indifference around them, sometimes born of fear, sometimes just born of kind of bureaucratic inertia. And they're banging their head against the wall. And, and some of them are sufficiently, I don't know, uh, resolute, that they keep pushing and they make a difference. But others just give up in frustration. So, so I... And I, of course, this both works both ways. For the MBAs, my advice is go to the progressive companies who are already showing that they're serious. And, of course, that exactly goes to my advice to the chief executives, which is if you want to hire the best and the brightest, don't be surprised if they uh, are being turned off if you're a little bit slow off the mark. So, so, you know, it's got to be much more than a slogan. Um, But, of course, a lot of companies are are really making good progress. I mean, I mentioned earlier NL, the energy company in, in Italy. I know them extremely well. I spent a lot of time in Roche, the Swiss pharmaceutical company, Unilever, ING Bank. I mean, I see companies across the board, different sectors, trying to really kind of live with this stuff. And, and, and those are the sorts of places where we should be gravitating.
0: But we're, we're living in the world of, like, the Great Resignation, yes, like where, exactly. where, where it's, yeah. it's very... The, the youth, the younger people, seem to be disconnected. I mean. uh, how, do, how do leaders today, like, of yeah. a different generation, yeah. almost by definition, how
1: do they intrinsically motivate? I mean, I was seeing some... I mean, this is researched a lot, but a research study I saw just last week basically said, what's the biggest single cause of people resigning? Um, Money comes in second, but number one was essentially a lack of developmental opportunities. A lack of opportunities for people to grow and develop within their organisations. So, yeah, we've got to pay people okay. But the biggest single thing we can do is give people interesting work to do. Now, that sounds like such a platitude, I realise, but let me just try to be a bit more practical about it. If you are a, you know, mid to senior manager, You're hiring people into roles. What do those people want? They want to do sort of some of your job for you. In other words, they want to be told, here is an opportunity that isn't just, you know, what you've defined it as, but is actually an opportunity which can be enlarged into. And so they want to be given a sense of where you want to take it. But you as the manager of those people have got to have the courage to let them... Go And of course, you know, we, we say, yeah, 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 we'll do that. But in fact, most of us, you know, when push comes to shove, we're a little bit controlling, right? We, we like to be on top of things. And, and the, the best single advice, which, you know, I, I need to take this advice myself because I've got a, a fairly important role at LBS nowadays, is, you know, don't steal other people's decisions. Give them the opportunity to, to learn and grow and make mistakes. Give them the, the freedom to, to kind of create new stuff. And of course... You know, they will more likely stay in their all, and, and fingers crossed, they will also then reflect that down on their own teams. And, and so it goes. That's that is the it's simplistic, but that's the best single advice we've got in terms of trying to get more people to stick around.
0: Yeah, at heart, we are all micromanagers, and, so and only that, being incredibly busy that, that 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 breaks us out of that. Just, yeah. don't just pass it on because I can't do it. But yeah. if you had the time, you would. It's just uh, I like, no, think human indeed. nature, and, but...
1: and we have to just admit <laughs> that. And 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 remind ourselves every day you know, stop stealing other people's decisions.
0: In this this series, we talk. Uh, it's kind of fifty percent of like you know n- uh, notable professors, uh, faculty like yourself, and fifty percent notable alumni. Um, and the notable alumni. Uh, the Key message that has been coming across throughout all of the interviews so far is is purpose. It's you know the people we, we come in, they really believe in what we're doing, and that's what makes them interested, and that's what makes them makes them makes yeah. them motivated at it. Yeah. It was just interesting in that that little little, little, yeah. little piece you, you said. Purpose was. At, at best third. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Well well for the people I'm interviewing, it's like it's nice number one. And look, let's let's be clear, I mean, I don't want to overinterpret that 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 data in terms of why do people quit? When people say, here are the five reasons I quit, trying to figure out which actually comes first or second, I don't know. Look, people want to feel that there's a real purpose in what they do. Absolutely. I wouldn't deny that. Um but purpose does take many forms. I mean, you know, purpose means as far as I'm concerned, playing to some sort of goal which isn't just purely money driven now that purpose can be in saving the planet it can be purpose around you know my local community or my immediate colleagues it can be about just creating a really cool product for my customers i mean any sort of stakeholder who isn't just you know the financial beneficiary of our activities all of those different Areas count from my point of view in terms of purpose, and and of course each of us is motivated by a slightly different set of drivers. So we've got to be fairly kind of you know open minded about what what exactly we mean by purpose.
0: Sure, sure, yeah. Um the whole kind of traditional shareholder value model has been bashed by all sorts of people, like even like Larry Fink. Like, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, like, yeah, wow. yeah. like Can you see that we're, that we're moving towards a model of management that
1: incorporates wider stakeholders? As you say, I mean, it's an old, I mean, it's an 80-year-old debate or about, I don't know exactly, but, you know, we, we can never get away from the need for companies in, in our capitalist world to make profit, Um, we have to move to a world, which we are moving to, everybody says this, where uh, a stakeholder view means that we are not giving primacy to shareholders. We are trying to treat shareholders and other stakeholders of the firm equally. Uh, As you say, the big investors, the black rocks of this world kind of get that. We're not going to ever get rid of the slightly more rapacious players In the capitalist system, there will always be activists who are out for short-term returns. And therefore it's the job of the people who are trying to take a more rounded view to continue to push against that and to try to show that in the long run this more stakeholder-oriented model works. And for me, you know, we can we can obviously talk about it, but for me, what does that mean for us as as individuals in companies at all levels? is we've just got to keep on reminding ourselves that, you know, profit-making money matters, but we can kind of keep it a little bit suppressed by bringing other aspects of being effective in the workplace to the foreground. So the way I think about it is we all have this sort of money-making aspect to our motivation. And then we have this much more social aspect to our our motivation. And to some degree, we also have this sort of, you know, I just want to learn and become better at what I'm doing piece. And the more we can elevate those other things, the more we kind of subdue this slightly more, as I say, slightly more avaricious sort of money-making part of it. We don't get rid of it completely. It's got to be good enough. But as long as we can kind of elevate these other bits, we keep the money-making part in check. And, And many of us choose jobs, you know, education is one of them, where actually the money-making part is less important. Whereas if you go into banking, unfortunately, the money-making part gets pushed up and everything else then gets...
0: As a, as a former banker, I can absolutely yeah. tell you, yeah, it's, it's all that matters. It's yeah.
1: thing that matters. And, yeah. and you know, if you could get rid of bankers' bonuses... We would, but we can't.
0: Yeah, your last six months is all anyone cares about. Indeed. And that's, you yeah. know, it's, it was a crazy, a crazy, crazy time in life.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but speaking of uh, kind of your role as an educator, yeah. we've also been talking kind of in wider stakeholder terms about, you know, not, not just kind of the world of business, but, you know, the, the wider world around us. Um, the, the climates, you know, and climate tra- mm. transition, um, as you mentioned before, it kind of falls, falls to individuals, falls to, to businesses, and it also falls, falls to governments mm. and society at large. Mm. But And some would say it falls between the cracks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and, and as an educator, I think one of the big things, and this is a slightly long-winded question, but uh, one, of the, one of the big kind of takeaways of my time at Time London business school was, was the school wants to make a meaningful impact yeah. in the way the world does business. Yeah? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we are good at that. As a business school, we are are good at that. Um, There seems to be a disconnect between that type of thinking, that type of messaging, um, to to people who are going into the world of business Mm -hmm. and to people who are going into the world of politics.
1: Here's how I think about it, which is, as you say, we have a very clear mission, found impact on the way the world does business, how business impacts the world. The world of business is changing before our eyes in ways we've all talked about. And London Business School should be developing leaders who have the skills and the mindset to make that difference, whether they go into business or indeed whether they go into the world of policy or, or government. Um, and I'll be a little bit self-critical here, actually. I think we London Business School have not yet done a good enough job at actually taking that sustainability mandate seriously i mean i'm not saying we've done a terrible job there's lots of stuff that we give our students to harness uh, those skills but we are we are moving in that direction and certainly one of my own initiatives as the as the vice dean of london business school is going to be to to help to create much more opportunities for our students to both learn sort of what it is they should be doing as they move into these roles and also to actually experiment with these things to actually get into the business of solving the the problems of people and planet with businesses. So more experiential learning, uh, more knowledge about what is required, so that when they go into those roles, as I say, both in in business as well as in the the, the governmental side of things, they're they're better placed to enact this change agenda that we're all, I think, kind of converging around. So, So I'm not sure if this is exactly where you were going with the question, but... But let me be clear, I mean, sustainability is a vital part of of what th- the world of business needs to think about. Therefore, it has to be a bigger part of what London Business School is doing as it trains the, the leaders of the future. Yeah.
0: So, um, you, you've, you've written um, on the topic of uh, organizational uh, ambidexterity. Mm. Really, really, really kind of fascinating topic. It's sort of the ability of management to explore new challenges as they continue to um, to, to, to exploit all strategies. Mm. Um. In the context of the oil majors...
1: Yeah. yeah, so, as we touched on earlier, I mean, the oil majors have been uh, very good at doing one thing extremely well, which is, of course, extracting large amounts uh, of oil and such like. Um, and they've now figured out, for the most part, that, that that's not the only thing they should be doing. And therefore, they are building expertise in doing the new stuff, which, by definition is less profitable in the short term than doing the old stuff. Um, and people might even argue with me on that, but I think they would even agree that in the short term it's, it's you know, less profitable, even if in the medium term it's, it's more profitable. So the point is to take this back to almost like the academic theory of it. How do you organise a company whereby you're trying to persuade them to do new stuff, which they are less good at, which is less profitable, than doing the old stuff. And the short answer is you have to carve out that new stuff into separate units where, first of all, they are judged on a different set of metrics uh, in terms of what success looks like. Is it about revenues? Is it about profits? Is it about whatever? And also you have to give them much greater freedom in terms of the ways in which they act. And of course, every other industry in the world has exactly the same problem. I, I remember I used to teach this case study on IBM, uh, and they had a, a separate unit called the Emerging Business Opportunities Unit. And of course IBM, I mean, they're, they're struggling these days, but they, they made huge profits, of course, in their old you know, hardware and software businesses, but they weren't very good at getting into some of these new services areas. So they had to carve these things out and give them freedom, and they had to have separate reporting lines and they had to give them much more agency to kind of create the future in the way that they saw fit. And so my point is, is very simple, that ambidexterity is doing these two different things equally well. In the short term, ambidexterity can only be achieved by actually creating a structure that allows the exploratory stuff to, to sort of blossom on its, on its own, and then gradually to bring that stuff back into the mainstream, separate, then integrate, as we say, so that in the longer term, we're actually building ambidexterity into the core of the system, if you see what I mean. So that's, that's in a simplistic way, kind of how ambidexterity applies to the world of, of, of big oil and, and, and energy companies. And remember, this is established firms. When you are, when you are Tesla, when you are Orsted, which has already, you know, basically got out of the old stuff, you know, it's a different problem because you know you are single-mindedly doing one thing. You know, the ambidexterity is particularly important when you're trying to manage it, manage from that transitional state from one 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 priority to another.
0: Mm. And that's so. That's from the kind of the, the traditional sectors' uh, point yeah. of view. In the the renewable energy sides, yeah. uh, you don't have the same level level of kind of highly concentrated, highly highly powerful firms. You've got a whole series of gotcha. of, of, of individual players. Um, but if you're talking about, say, kind of taking it into to ad hoc receives, yeah, maybe yeah. you can give a give a little, little explanation. Yeah. Um, I'd posit that each of the COP the conferences that yeah. are held are a pretty good example of autocracy, ad- where kind yeah. of a general overall framework is yeah. given and then yeah. everyone's just out there yeah. Trying, yeah. To, trying to do it all yeah, themselves. That's yeah, that's a
1: great point, and let's, let's play with it, because in one of my books I made this distinction between bureaucracy, coordination through rules, meritocracy, coordination through argument and you know, getting to the bottom of things. autocracy is coordination around opportunity and activity. And... Ad hocracy, I've traditionally thought about it as you know, almost like a, a startup company is scrambling to create something out of nothing. Classic ad very few rules. If you bring that into the the world, if you like, of, of into you know, into governmental organisations, you're right. Something like COP twenty six was, uh, or sorry, all the cops before it, for that matter. Um, these were an attempt to create a, an overarching structure. So you might say that's bureaucratic, but actually. You know, it's a very light-touch bureaucracy. What it actually is, is, is creating a set of parameters in which we then encourage lots of member states and, and private companies and so forth to then take action. Now, the risk of ad hocracy, at least in the way I frame it, is that, that you get this disjointed action, that you get a, a lack of coherence. And so I think that's something to be watchful of because obviously, you know, you've got to have at least some sense of where people are going. Uh, but it is definitely the, the right way of getting action because you know, bureaucracy leads to lots and lots of conversations. We need to find a way of turning those conversations to action. So, yeah, I like it. I mean, I hadn't actually thought about COP as ad as adhocracy, but you're right, you can definitely frame it that way
0: so uh, would normally like to ask uh, uh, people as a closer is why should individuals be them kind of MBA students or people who are who are looking at this from the c-suites or run yeah. their businesses or people who are just interested in the, to putting their time or their money mm-hmm. um, into this area like care about what what's what what do you care about yeah. I think with with from this conversation it might be um, might be a Good kind of slight shift of that, mm-hmm. and we're looking at a kind of a multi generational issue in climate mm-hmm. change. Yeah, yeah. What advice would you give to the next generation of leaders?
1: Yeah, so the next generation of leaders are, of course, our students of today. Um, and I've touched on a little bit of, you know, first of all, go to the places where you can make a difference. And sometimes that is the big companies, the Unilevers of this world. And sometimes it's absolutely, you know, social enterprise or some sort of startup activity. Uh, where you, you can actually start to make a difference, albeit with certain risks, uh, immediately. Um, and then you, your job is is simply, and of course this isn't simple at all, is to make the thing that you create so interesting that then, you know, you, you pull everybody else along with you. And, and, of course, that requires a huge sort of, uh, almost like ambidexterity for the individual, right? In the short run your job is to be single-mindedly decisively pushing an interesting agenda that you feel passionate about. And then at some point, you have to flick a switch and figure out that it's actually not about you anymore. It's about the people you're pulling with you, because your job is to actually then, you know, open the doors and to, you know, to release the past, the creativity, if you like, of that, of that next generation. And, you know, that's the single biggest sort of challenge any of us face as leaders. It's, it's a fundamental behavioural point, which we've just touched on, which is, you know, the, the old saw about, you know, what got you here won't get you there. In other words, you know, to get to a certain level, you've got to be pretty decisive and single-minded in, in trying to, 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 to get over the bureaucracy around you. And then once you started to see some success, you have to become much more welcoming of others' points of views and and trying to nurture others and trying to make them feel that they're in the spotlight rather than putting yourself in the spotlight all the time. Are you optimistic? I'm uh, yes, I am. And and of course I'm I'm optimistic with this sort of pragmatic bent. In other words, if I didn't believe that we could make progress, I, I'd kind of retire now. But I'm I'm very conscious that that it's hard it's a hard slog. That every step forward we take, you know, we do take half a step back. And so we just got to keep. Reminding everybody how hard this is, and and then collectively we we will make progress.
0: Well, thank you very much. That was a fantastic conversation. Perfect. Thanks Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, If you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions this series is produced by united renewables in collaboration with the london business school alumni energy club these are conversations that you just can't afford to miss